Hello, and welcome to the Future of Tourism podcast. My name is David Peacock. My guest today is a fellow Canadian, uh, an award-winning journalist, and he's the European Bureau Chief for the Global Mail newspaper. He appears regularly on CTV, BBC, and his career includes stints with the Times of London, the Financial Post, and the Financial Times of Canada. Eric Regulli was born in Vancouver and grew up in Toronto, and now lives in Rome as the European Bureau Chief for the Globe. Good morning, Eric. How are you? I'm great. Uh, thanks for having me on. Where are you this morning? I'm in my home office in Rome. It's um, a beautiful, clear, cool day. Um, and uh, otherwise, uh, you know, nothing is exciting in my life. Uh, Rome's pretty much dead at the moment. There's, there's pretty much zero tourists. And um, so we're all like everyone else, just waiting for the vaccine to bring us back to life. So are you still keeping your pandemic diary? I am a bit less frequently, um, but I will update it uh, soon. Um, I have some friends and all the journalists in Rome are keeping pandemic diaries. And one of my one of my best friends in Rome is a Brit and who's a full time book writer, unlike me, is actually um, turning his plague diary into a book. It should be out pretty soon. I probably should have done the same, but, you know, I consider it just a, a minor part of my uh, existence. Well, I've been following it and it was it's it was exciting, you know, in the early days when you talk about going out for a walk in the empty streets and using your press pass to get outside. Um, that's become a bit more pedestrian over time, hasn't it? It just it's it's novel to begin with and now it's like yeah, we're here we are again. Yeah, I wouldn't say uh, unlike the spring when you know, listen, in March and April the, the scenes of army trucks filled with coffins going to hospitals and coming back with those same coffins loaded with bodies and then going into communal pits. Um, that was horrifying. I mean, you know, when the pandemic was just roaring through Europe, especially Northern Italy, we were terrified. You know, we, we didn't know how bad it was. We didn't know the fatality rates. Um, we um, didn't think the fatality rates would be as low as they ended up being. Now we're, you know, well into the second wave, and it's like, you know, here we go again. It's it, it's it's lockdown fatigue. Uh, we know it's not going to kill, you know, ninety nine percent of us. So I'm honestly a bit more relaxed, but mostly I'm bored. You know, my job is traveling. Um, I cover I don't know forty fifty countries in the Mediterranean, Europe, Middle East, North Africa. And my last trip out of Italy was in February. So I'm, I'm just, I'm raring to go again, but it's not going to happen anytime soon. So today I want to talk to you about something you've been writing about for a while. I want to talk to you about cities, cities mm -hmm. and the and the pivot they've made either pre-COVID or in COVID. And I want to relate that to tourism because a lot of these cities are tourism destinations. And just as you point out in your article, cities are busy trying to understand their current environment, understand their future environment, understand their role and function. The same thing's going on with destination organizations. To some extent, many of them are rudderless waiting for this to play out. And in another uh, more positive sense, many of them are hard at work on trying to reinvent themselves. So one of your favorite heroes, you say, is Miguel Anxo Fernandez Lores, a minor socialist politician in Pontevedra, Spain. Um, 20 years ago, he, quote, 
ended the city's status as a car warehouse. That's an article you wrote in the Globe about three weeks ago. Tell us about tell us about Ponte Vedra. Well, um, honestly, I've not been there, but I I've been reading about this mayor, uh, Loris. Uh, God, for at least five or six years, because I, I like cities. I, I'm, uh, I'm very much an urban creature, and I've lived in 12 cities in four countries, and I, I sort of I have an idea of what works and doesn't work um, as, um, you know, as, as a professional for the most part, and but also as a tourist. Um, I consider this mayor... So, so Ponte Vedra is in is in uh, just north of the Portuguese border in northwestern Spain. Population about eighty eight thousand. Not a big city. Uh, it was car choked. He's a socialist. He came in in nineteen ninety nine. He had a vision, a plan. He put it in place overnight. And he said the historic center. We're not going to tweak. We're gonna we're gonna nuke, and they just got rid of all the cars overnight in the, in the historic center. And there was a lot of resistance to it, um, but it brought, he called the center dead. He's brought it back alive. And now, you know, I'm, I'm a business economic journalist mostly, but it, instead of killing the city, it, it did the opposite. Retail sales per square meter or square foot, wherever you want to um, measure it, rose dramatically. Uh, the air became more breathable. Um, the place became more greener. He added, um, you know, the spots where that were devoted to parking became bicycle lanes and green area, and it's it saved the city. And uh, Paris is doing the same now. But I mean, what I what I like is about about this um, mayor in in Portugal is that he figured this out twenty years before. The mayor of Paris figured this out, or the mayor of London figured this out. No one paid attention to him, right? So I'm I have an interview, and I'm wondering what he's thinking now. Like he must be thinking, guys, you know, what took you 20 years? I, I did it first. Well, you you point out in that article that many cities are looking at models like that, and they're considering how they reinvent themselves. And you're talking about how in particular, COVID-19 pandemic has accelerated that thinking. What do you see there? Uh, depends on the city, but um, what the, the pandemic did in Europe uh, overnight was, was it made people afraid of um, commuting, of public transportation, of office towers. So those three things. So um, all of a sudden, the people wanted to uh, work and live in their communities as opposed to traveling. So what, what is this, this did immediately was, uh, virtually overnight was create a bike culture. Um, you cannot get bikes in Europe now. I mean, I ordered a new bike in August. It has not arrived because the manufacturers have flat out. So in all these cities, in the big cities, hundreds or thousands of kilometers, new bike lanes are coming in. I'm in Rome, 150 new kilometers came in pretty fast uh, of new bike lanes. So that's been, a, that's been a huge net positive as far as I'm concerned. Um, cars are a little less popular, which is really good. Um, and I think that this trend will accelerate um, 
down the road as, as, as people, because not everyone's going to go back to their offices. You know, some will, but, you know, who knows, a certain percentage will not. So you're going to go back to the old Jane Jacobs model of, of living and working in your own immediate community. And I think well, that's great for the environment, it's great for... Uh, so so uh, let's, tell, let's tell people who Jane Jacobs was. Okay, Jane Jacobs, uh, who died about 10 years ago, was probably the most famous um, American urbanologist. Uh, she wrote a famous book called The Death and Life of Great American Cities. In the 1960s, when urban planners were absolutely obsessed with uh, connecting cities to the suburbs with, with huge freeways. Uh, a freeway was going to go from Long Island right through southern Manhattan, which is what is now Soho and Greenwich Village, to go to New Jersey. And I forget the name of that project. I think it was Long Island Expressway. And she organized mass protests at the top, but it would have obliterated southern Manhattan. Um, in the late 60s, I think 69, she moved to Toronto. She did the same with the Spadina Expressway. She stopped. So I, I read that the other night in, in one of your pieces. So if the city had had its way in 69, the Spadina Avenue would have become what, a raised elevated expressway like the Gardner? Yeah, it would have, it just, it would, it would have come, come right through uh, the western side of the city into, the, into downtown. Wow! I mean, you, look, you look what the gardeners done to Toronto. It's it's wrecked the waterfront, but also the Don Valley Expressway. The Don, they put in in Toronto, the Don Valley Expressway went down through what could have been the most beautiful park in North America. The most beautiful valley in Toronto, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's, wow. now, it's, now a, it's now a highway. So wow. she stopped, she stopped the one on the other side of the city. Well, it's interesting to see Boston actually spend so much time and effort in the big dig to get rid of their elevated expressway. If they, you know, they talk about one thing, it's elevated expressways are really hard to maintain and visually quite horrible, especially when they're between you and the waterfront. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, I mean look, at, look at Chicago's waterfront compared to, to Toronto, you know, Toronto. It's, it's, yeah. it's condos, condos and cars. You can't even see Lake Ontario. Um, it's a shame, absolute shame. So you, you talk about Jane Jacobs being vindicated uh, in some sense, you know, in the in this shift. And then you talk specifically about Paris and Milan beginning to push what they call the 15-minute city. What is the 15-minute city? Uh, does not have a precise definition. A 15-minute city is a concept that Jane Jacobs would have approved of because she believed in living in multi-use neighborhoods where you lived and worked um, in the same area. Um, the 15 minute city uh, is designed to give you uh, access to all essential services, healthcare, banks, shopping, entertainment, within 15 minutes, schools, 15 minutes on foot or bar, by bicycle. This is how cities used to work 60, before the advent of, of, of the car, you know. Um, and um, Paris in particular is trying to go back to that model. It's not gonna be easy. Milan also is, is trying to get to that model. Not gonna be e easy either, but it's, it's a great concept. And it will, environmentally it's a good concept. Um, socially it's, it's a good concept, but it's gonna, it's gonna recreate local communities. Remember London, England used to be that, it used to be, 
there was no such thing as London. It was it was a it was um, a collection of high streets with villages. You know, and, mm-hmm. you know, the idea is to get back to that. I, I had a peer I used to work with years ago, and he had a famous saying that I loved, which was, he said, you know, as human beings, we're fascinated by towns and villages that are built on a human scale. Yeah. And I, and I love that. Yeah. I mean, that's why I absolutely adore Venice. You know, it's medium density. Um, there's no skyscrapers. Rome, where I live, is the only capital city in the world without a skyscraper in it. Well, so let's think about that. I'd almost say in the lee of the COVID-19 crisis, we're not in the lee of it. We won't be in the lee of it for some time, but when we're in the lee of the COVID-19 crisis, destinations and organizations all over the world are looking at reinventing themselves. Some are more in lockstep with the cities and places they represent, but truthfully a very small percent are that closely aligned with their businesses, their citizens and their government. So let's talk about the Venice example. You wrote an excellent piece, um, in the globe on Venice. Um, I think the number that jumped out that hit me the hardest was this, the average ratio of tourists to residents in Venice on a given day is 500 to one. Yes, um, so my story on Venice is, um, I started going to Venice as a kid in the early 70s. I've probably been there 30 or 40 times. Uh, it was my favorite city in the world. When maps tourism took over, in the and the cruise ships took over in the 1990s um i pretty much stopped going except as a journalist to chronicle its its demise in recent years i hated the city i just no interest in going there whatsoever uh it, it became a dead city now listen venice was always a tourist center but it wasn't mass tourism that came now that that had come now and um when i went back during the pandemic in the late spring or early summer, I just found it magical again, absolutely magical. Because, look, and I felt sorry for the, a lot of the closed uh, shops, but um, Venetians are coming back and reclaiming their city, and uh, I, I absolutely love that. And my theory, in a sentence, is that Venice should be the model city of the 21st century. So when you when you visited Venice, you made a number of uh, you had a number of meetings there. Um, Venturini is a guy who stands out in my mind. He was the I think he's the deputy mayor. Yes. So he said um, essentially that Venice has always been trying to you know find its way back, but the work to date was tinkering. He said the city needs a whole new approach to tourism, which would see fewer big cruise ships, Airbnbs, fewer day trippers, and a greater focus on cultural visits and education and the launch of a technology hub that might concentrate on the green economy, such as electric boats. Is that is that possible? Is he working towards that? Is that aspirational? Tell me what you think. It is possible. Um, I am worried that a vaccine is going to... Um, bring Venice back to what it was. There's some chance it won't. Listen, Italy is complicated. Um, The Venetians want to stop the cruise boats, but that's not a local law. That's a federal law. The ports are federal infrastructure. Uh, Unless the government in Rome says no, uh, they're going to keep on coming. What Venice is doing is 
putting a head tax on tourists coming off the boats, but it's minimal. You know, it's, it's a few euros ahead. If it were a hundred euros ahead, you know, it it might ha might uh, do so. But uh, look at here's what I think: young people, especially. You know, I'm an old old guy, um, but young people, especially, they're like my daughters. My you know my late teens. Um, they don't want cars. They don't want driver's license. They're never going to get driver's license. They're never going to own a car. My youngest daughter is searching for a campus in a city that's not plugged with traffic. She's actually looking at the University of Venice. Why? Because you can walk up the streets and not see, hear, or smell traffic and the pollution that's created by it. Um, so I think Venice could be, with some imagination, could be a thriving center for technology, uh, for education, um, for the environment and I, I think there is some chance it could go that way given the right bylaws the right ta uh, tax structure and you know a mayor who has no conflict is not wired into the local big business community so that's a really good point that nationally venice is a economic engine that just churns through money but locally when you have to live in it you wrote a really pithy paragraph that said most Venetians aren't convinced the municipal regional and national governments really cared about the future of Venice their argument is that they that they had that if they had they would have put some checks on mass tourism and ensured things like the on-time completion of the tide control barriers which we know last year in November um, Venice just got hammered with floods a project that's years and years behind um essentially saying, you know, in, in the choice between tourism and tide control, the, 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 the city of Venice chose tourism and, and more important infrastructure pieces were, were let lagging, which just speaks to um, essentially, you know, optimizing the output of that tourism asset, but not taking care of it. Yeah. Well, what, it was greed, David. It just, when you say optimizing the tourism choice, it was just greed. I mean, the uh, the fastest way to milk Venice for for every every euro that it can produce is to is to embrace mass tourism. It costs nothing, right? Uh, you know, you open open the port to monster ships. You know, five thousand tourists being barfed out at once. You uh, let people put turn their apartments into Airbnbs, which has happened with zero controls. There were no controls on it. Many cities like Paris limit the the Airbnb nights to you know a certain percentage year. I can't remember if it was a third or a half, but there there are some reasonable limits on it. There was nothing on that. There was no investment in so what tourism is ine inevitable. What kind of tourism do we want? Um, I mean, what I find weird about Venice is, is that not only is it mob with tourism, but it's it's mob with tourism in a very small area in Venice. You know, it's Piazza San Marco, St. Mark's Square, the Doge's Palace, but there's some wonderful museums where no one goes to, you know, just a little bit out of the, of, of that, you know, the central heart there. And, you know, that's again, that's, that's uh, selfie, selfie tourism. You know, they didn't go after the cultural tourist. They went after the day trippers. So you, you talk about, I've, I've heard you talk about Amsterdam as a more diversified economy and a, a place. And, you know, it's actually, um, 
in my mind, I, I hold the two of them uh, close to each other because they're two of the strangest, most purpose-built cities I've ever met. I can't imagine why you fight back, you know, the ocean in either case to create the stretch of land. But I've, yeah. I've come to understand it over the years, and I and I didn't understand Amsterdam. It took me years to understand that Amsterdam was built as the residents, the locals, moved offshore to to avoid the marauding um, Moors who would come down every 600 years and just knock the heck out of them. So they moved off into the swamp, so to speak, and built on stilts. But Amsterdam has a more diversified economy. It is a tech center. It is a business center. It is a tourism center. Talk to me about Amsterdam. Okay, I don't know Amsterdam nearly as well as as Venice. Though you know, I you know I go there probably once a year. Amsterdam made a choice not to go for strictly map tourism, and uh, um, I mean Amsterdam has everything. I mean, it has all sorts of industries, and and Venice could have been that way. Now I'm not sure about Amsterdam whether it's tax structure or limits on Airbnbs. I suspect both. But they've, they've kept businesses beyond cheap old hot dog stands and, and pizzerias, you know, and it, it has worked. I mean, Amsterdam is really small. I mean, it's, the, the, the historic center is probably smaller than Venice. Uh, so they really, really had to control it. They did a good job getting rid of cars, though, you know. Um, but my, my, my point is, um, I don't even understand. I don't understand tourism, David. I don't get it. Well, I mean, good, good. And this is where this is this is why I got you here today. And this is a bit of a sobering discussion for all of us on this end. <clears throat> the industry we work in um, really aspirationally wants to be a better industry. Wants to um, have authentic senses of place and connect with locals. But that's something that really became vogue in the last three or four years. The idea that that tourism had a responsibility to its place and that if it didn't enrich the life of citizens or <clears throat> make stakeholder businesses more uh, profitable or effective, then, then really what was it? But I will tell you, that's a new, relatively new concept of tourism. Now, there are great little places around the world that have been practicing it all along, but for the most part, um, you're seeing a version of a scaled down version of Venice where, you know, certain things make money, do those things. So I'm going to ask you <clears throat> as the global mail bureau chief in Europe, talk to me about your perception of tourism. I think the leaders in our industry need to hear it from outside. We spend a lot of time worrying about this. We spend a lot of time convinced that we're, you know, we're right on it and changing it. But what is the perception of tourism from the, from the non industry person? A net, a net negative for the, for the, um, for society, um, um, even possibly even for the economy. Let me just give you a, a if we have another few minutes, uh, my perspective. I, I moved to Rome 13 years ago. Been here a long time, actually an Italian citizen. I loved Rome when I came here because Rome was not overwhelmed with tourism. There was always, it was always, there was always a lot of tourism here. But what was special about historic Rome, which is Rome within the walls, pretty big, you know, probably the biggest historic center in Europe, maybe the world, um, was that Romans, actual Romans lived in historic and had not turned into a Venice, had not turned into a florist. Romans lived there. They had their favorite restaurants, uh, their cafes. Um, they, it was their city and tourists were guests. You know, as mass tourism came in, the chain stores came in, the locals moved out. 
Um, the restaurants cater to people who would buy one meal and could never come back again. The, um, the cliche was in Rome, you could not get a bad meal. Now the, the, uh, the saying in Rome is you can only get a bad meal because um, uh, you know, they're, they're not catering to the Romans. Um, central Rome is in danger of becoming a dead city. Um, and I, what I do understand about tourism is, to me, tourism is, is seeing how the, how the locals live. I mean, if you go to Venice, Florence, and even Rome now, you're not getting a sense of that, you know, because there are no Romans left, really. They're, they're, they, they're moving out. Of course, there are. I'm exaggerating to make a point, but uh, fewer and fewer of them. So that experience of seeing how the locals live is gone. Um, so you're missing that whole cultural experience. Um, and you're getting, you remember the Audrey Hepburn movies, you know, uh, Holiday in Rome. I mean, tourists would come for a week or two weeks and they would spend, there are 200 museums in Rome, maybe five get visited, you know. Um, so I, when I say I don't understand tourism, I don't understand what a day trip or tourism is getting out of the Rome experience because there's no exposure to the locals. Um, and the it's 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 a it's a rapid jaunt through the highlights you know and there's no sense of no desire to learn the history to experience i mean every brick every road every piece of masonry in the city's got two to three thousand years of history of it there's a story everywhere but no one's getting it anymore so i, I think it it but this you know how do i argue this it, it means you sound like a damn snob because basically to to get um cultural tourists back, you have to raise prices, right? Well, we know one thing coming out of the pandemic, which is prices on tourism have to be raised. There's, mm -hmm. there's no way we can service at the same level with the same amenities uh, at the same price anymore. And so hopefully with that influx of some new resources, some of this changes, I, I hear that um, plea for authenticity in almost every tourism um, discussion or conference I go to. People like yourselves, like myself, want to go to places and be immersed in culture. Um, those of us that are really on that bent tend to tiptoe around the best of showings and try and find those little places off the beaten track for the authentic meal, etc. But what would what would um, Mayor Fernandez? Laura's say in Ponte Vedra about tourism. What do you think he would say in a town that reinvented itself, took away the car because it was sapping the lifeblood out of the city? What do you think the role of tourism would or should be in a, a well-planned community like that? Okay, I, I'm imagining because I've never met him. I hope to that he. I imagine he would say, and 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 Hidalgo of Paris would probably say the same thing that getting not getting rid of tourism, um, downplaying tourism, um, mass tourism is not going to kill your city. In fact, it could do the opposite because guess what? Um, as, 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 um, as he found in, 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 in Spain that retail sales soared when he got rid of cars, right? So mm -hmm. I, I don't know if those are tourists. Those are probably locals, right? Um, so reclaiming the city um, for the locals is also going to bring in business. It's also going to give uh, a more authentic experience to the tourists. Um, 
I think that the same thing could happen in in the in the in the larger cities in Europe. So I'll give you a little bit of glimmer of hope on that one. A, a friend of mine, Signe Jungerstedt, who worked for Copenhagen, um, in 2017, her organization declared the end of tourism as we know it in Copenhagen. And they said, we, we're not asking you to come and be tourists anymore. We want you to become and be locals. Um, it's a statement. It's not, it's not an entire shift, but the statement precipitated a shift to the idea of localhood. And they've been focused ever since on coming to Copenhagen, finding a way to treat the visitor as a local and immerse them in that culture. It's, it's happening. It's catching on in bits and pieces around the world. It's not ubiquitous next. Um, I'll take your word for it, but it sounds like a lovely concept to me. Well, I just think I'm a cynical journalist. I mean, it's just that greed always wins out in the end. I mean, the, the easy option wins. I mean, you know, I, um, how are you going to stop the mass, the ships? I, I don't know. You know, I, um, well, I, uh, in, 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 um, parallel to that, you know, that Victoria is working very, very hard on trying to figure out its new role and function, taking away the ships from Victoria to, you know, the bulk of their visiting public out. But at the same time, they got a bit of a Venice moment and they got to see the city without that pressure. And there's a lot of um, support for the idea that they can't go back to the mass um, um, cruise ship uh, business that they had before. Now, like you, I don't know where it goes next, but I can tell you that that movement's growing. Well, I'm very, I'm very pleased to see that. I, I just think that mayors, uh, and more so in Europe than I don't know about North America, because I haven't lived there for so long. Um, I mean, it's just an eternal quest for more revenue, but I don't think they realize that that by reducing mass tourism doesn't mean reducing revenue. That that other business, like it's not just like in Rome, it's not just Romans leaving the center. It's also the businesses that they ran leaving the center. Like, okay, the for example, um, there's a famous hat shop where Woody Allen used to buy all his hats in Rome. It's it's very close to Piazza di Spagna. It's gone, right? Because his type of tourist, the one who appreciated culture and craftsmanship, um, wanted to spend money, that disappeared. And those shops are disappearing with them. These are the these are the the you know, day trippers don't buy beautiful, elegant clothing, you know, they buy, you know, crap, you know, they buy uh, I don't know, um, the uh, underwear with an Italian flag on it, you know. Um, so it's, it's when you're getting rid of mass tourism, the locals are going to come back, but also the businesses are going to come back, and that will rebuild the tax base. Because what all mayors want is a tax base. Well, and I think you touch on what the future of tourism really is in the sense that if you want to experience a place authentically. If you want to rebuild it authentically, you have to work with the businesses that are authentic business. And I think of I think of Parma and Reggio and how exciting it was the first time I ever went to those cities and realized that the, the, the cheeses I was eating or the breads I was eating were named after places. And those places were so rooted in the tradition of that food. Um, I think one of the movements is taking place in North America right now that can be helpful is destinations are looking at the businesses that are in their communities and saying, A, post-pandemic, our job is to help these businesses survive, 
but it's also to communicate and share the authenticity of these businesses. And I think that might be a silver lining. We, we talk about, um, you know, trying to align with community values and a sense of, um, you know, shared prosperity for everybody. Those are, those are goals. Those aren't things to do. The tools that might get us there are perhaps working more closely with mayors and working more closely with city councils, but most importantly, working more closely with businesses because they're the ones with the lights always on. They're the ones who serve not just the visitor, but the local as well. Yeah. You know, my favorite, just to finish off, David, my favorite cities in Italy are the ones that um, have decided not to pursue mass, pursue mass tourism. Can just what, they're all, they're all three of them are big cities, but I'll, can yeah. you guess which three are my favorites in Italy? Okay, um, Portofino. No, no, I'm talking about big cities. These are made big three cities. cities in Italy that have not completely surrendered to mass tourism, and I find them much more interesting than the cities that have. So Milan. For sure, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's kept its productive base. Um, uh, it's it's a thriving economy, and I find it really interesting. You can walk along a street and see a guy who's been there for 100 years building bespoke racing bikes. You know, it's yeah, yeah. It's not a pizzeria, you know. Okay, second one. Second, second one. Um, Verona. Uh, no, I'm talking major city. Okay, I'm I'm gonna all the, all of the ones I've entered are gonna be smaller because I'm thinking Pisa, okay. Verona. Well, no, go on. Um, Naples. Naples? Really? Yeah. Naples hasn't given into that pressure, essentially. No, not as much. No, um, not nearly as much as Rome, Florence, Venice, uh, Verona. Uh, I thought there's an authenticity in Naples, which uh, I really look, it's an hour train ride from Rome. We go off, or we did before the pandemic, even for lunch. Um, it's still, you know, the neighborhoods are still Italian, you know. Cool. Um, and Palermo is the capital of Sicily, which, uh, again, uh, yes, they all get tourism, but not not to the degree that uh, the northern cities get. Um, partly a perception in Naples and Sicily that, you know, it's run by the mafia, you know, and I think that's scared from, the, you know, they watch, they watch these mafia movies, like the yeah, Godfather, yeah. like, oh, we're going to get gunned down there. That's not true, you know. Yes. So, um but those those cities that have not completely surrendered to mass tourism. Well, and I, I'll add one to that list, and I don't know if it's ostensibly French or Italian anymore. Which is is Ajaccio and Corsica is always been one of my favorite places to visit, and it's a little bit you know like the early uh, British Empire. It's a little too far off the coast to be overrun all the time. You got to make an effort to get there. But Corsica is still one of my favorite places in Europe. Yeah. Yeah, another city is Turin, Torino, uh, which is yep. more, it's like a like Paris, but fifty years ago. Um, again, it's a little bit off the beaten track, but uh, utterly wonderful. You know, and you know what isn't bad either is uh, Malaga in Spain is is is, an, is a refreshing alternative for a city that's that's a living, working center, but at the same time a fascinating place to go. Yeah, I mean, speaking of Spain, you know, we could talk about Bar Barcelona. I mean, I've only been there three or four times. But my last trip there, I was horrified. You know, it was just, it was just overwhelmed with tourism. And the locals were getting angry. They were getting resentful of tourists. There were anti-tourist protests going yes. on. Yeah. Um, and that's a city that took a good thing and just... And just um, 
uh, destroy it, you know. Well, and you talked with me briefly about that before, which is, you know, the Olympics is such a, um, you know, golden brand, so to speak, but it can have such negative effects. I, I got to go to Barcelona shortly after the Olympics, and it was magnificent. I mean, it's scale. I, you just can't imagine that somewhere in the, in the 16 and 1700s was building five lane wide streets. I mean, it, it, it speaks to the majesty of that empire. Um, and then with the, with the fittings that they put in for the Olympics, the, you know, the brilliant Frank Gehry um, sculptures down by the waterfront, it was truly an amazing city and, and relatively empty of tourists in, you know, in that short period, just after the Olympics, I did go back a year ago and it was, jammed the hilt, line up for everything, you know, two hours in line to go to uh, the Sagrada Familia and, 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 you know, even the lineups to get into Parque Guayel. It's not the same place it was 15 years ago. No, I, I have no interest in going back. Yeah, not, not and, more. It's too bad because it is a fascinating place with incredible history. Um, but yeah, I, I, I share your thoughts. All right. Just closing thoughts um, in this, in this recovery what are you looking forward to? What do you want to warn us about? Anything Anything you want to add? Well, in the recovery, I'm looking forward to um, obviously um, more people on bike, fewer cars. That's happening. That's going to keep on going. I'm hoping that people, the pandemic was terrible in many ways, but the wonderful things about the pandemic is it taught people who live in historic people, cities like, like as I knew, Rome, Paris, that um, that it's nice to to reclaim your city again. I mean, one of my favorite things is to walk in the historic Rome. I look right on the edge of it and go to the Trevi Fountain and be able to see it and hear the water, not hear you know tourists screaming at each other for you know, for selfies. And I, I I'm hoping that'll put some local pressure against mass uh, tourism. But I'm really hoping that we're going to get votes now for enlightened mayors like Anne Hidalgo of Paris, who sees uh, a, a city that is built for for locals and pedestrians um, and not for cars. And I think this will be a wonderful thing for everyone, tourists, tourists as well. And I, but I think that that movement really has got legs. Milan's doing it. Paris is doing it. London's trying to do it. Um, Rome is sort of half-assing it. Um, but it's a move in the right direction. Well, Eric, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Um, it's it's a sobering thing to hear your take on on cities and tourism, but I think it'll be super helpful. Um, I thank you for all your great work at The Globe. I think it's a, an outstanding newspaper, one of the best in the world still. And, and again, thanks for joining us this morning. Okay, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.